Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jose Antonio. Dr. Antonio is Associate Professor and the Program Director of Exercise Science at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He is a co-founder and the CEO of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the ISSN, which regularly publishes evidence-based position stands on the most up-to-date practices in a number of sports, as well as position stands on a number of sports-related supplements. Um, he's also co-founder of the Society for Neurosports, which investigates the effects of sports on a number of neurological processes. Uh, I'm really excited today to be speaking with Dr. Antonio uh, because I've read a huge amount of his research into the effects of protein on body composition and health. And uh, there's a very, very good chance that if you've read any amount of research on protein, you've read some of his work too. Um, research from Dr. Antonio's lab has been hugely important in determining not only the, the safety of protein in large doses, but also its usefulness for maintaining muscle mass while dieting. Um, I really hope you enjoy this episode and uh, even learn something from it because I know I certainly did. And if you do, uh, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Um, feel free to share the episode on social media too, uh, if that's your thing, because it, I massively appreciate it and it would really, really help to promote the podcast to more people. So on to this conversation with uh, Dr. Jose Antonio. Let's talk science. Hello. Hey, how are you? How are you doing? I am doing great. Um, I'm living in paradise here in South Florida, just so you know. Uh, we, 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 we were having a little bit of a chat just before we got started, and uh, you were doing your, your level best to make me uh, jealous of uh, your current lifestyle in Florida. <laughs> just, just, just for all of us poor individuals over here in the, you know, the, basically the North Atlantic, what were you doing this morning? I was actually out in the ocean. The Atlantic Ocean is looking really nice down here in South Florida. It's kind of a beautiful aquamarine color, and I was paddling. As, as you know, people seem to think I live on the ocean, which I guess I kind of do. Um, just absolutely gorgeous out there. The water is, you jump in the water, it's actually quite um, refreshing. And I know if you jump into the ocean where you are, I think you die in like a minute or something. Hey, it's, it's something like that. You, you, you die, and then you, they find a popsicle in your shape. and. Then, uh... <laughs> Awesome. I won't paddle there. I won't paddle there. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, hey, I have no complaints. I live a charmed life down here. Yeah, uh, you, yeah. like I said, I'm going to try and make it over to uh, one of the ISN, ISN conferences uh, if I can. You, so you paddleboard and you do it competitively. Is that right? Well, uh, when you say the word competitive, it, it, it presumes that I might win a race, but actually <laughs> I compete against myself. Okay. And, but, yeah, there's, there's actually a series of races. In fact, Florida and California are probably the two. And, and then I guess throw in Hawaii, uh, three states of the United States where, where stand-up paddling, competitive paddling are, are, are fairly, uh, it's fairly extensive. So in the state of Florida, because the weather is warm all year, you could literally find a race any week or any other week as long as you're willing to drive somewhere. So no races in December for me. The next race for me will be in January. It'll be um, up about one hour north of where I am. So um, I trained for it basically to race against myself because, God forbid, this old body isn't going to beat those young guys out there or even the young girls. Who am I kidding? <laughs> they kicked my butt too. <laughs> so. Hey, the fact that you're out there every day training is, is, is damn impressive. I, I was complimenting you on your tan earlier as well because of it. Uh, so. <laughs> Something that we just don't get over here. <laughs> the lack of 
Well, you know, I need my vitamin D, and you're well aware of the data on that. So I got to get yes. it. And in fact, for those of us who have darker skin, we got to be out there longer, right, to get enough vitamin D. So whereas and you, if you if you come down to Florida, it would only take you like you know five minutes, and you're good. Five minutes, and I could probably you know top off my my yearly reserve of vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> But just just for anybody who might not be uh, familiar with uh, with you or your work, would you be able to give a little bit of an introduction into uh, your background and how you got into uh, you know your current research at the moment? Please. Yeah, I actually um, let me start back to when I was a, a doctoral student. My research my research interests have always been in sports nutrition. I always loved that field. However. When I started my doctoral program, this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, there, was, there really was no sports nutrition program or sports nutrition research at all. In fact, as a formal field of study, I think people, you know, academics tended to make fun of it. So back when I was doing my PhD at the University of Texas, I actually focused on uh, skeletal muscle plasticity, looking at, you know, what's the role of uh, muscle fiber hypertrophy and hyperplasia, uh, when skeletal muscles grow as a result of, you know, tension overload. And I use animal models for that. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that. In terms of animal models, I've worked with cats, rats, goldfish, birds, dogs. Yeah, I didn't really like working with dogs because I like dogs. Um, all sorts of animal models. And and no one's aware of that unless they read some of my older, some of my older papers. But I, I started in skeletal muscle plasticity. When I graduated, I, got, I did what was called a postdoctoral research fellowship in the field of endocrinology and metabolism. And then when I basically finished my formal education, I transitioned into sports nutrition. And really that transition has been really the last couple decades of my career. And so if... If you go back to the start of the ISSN, which was in 2004, roughly, up until now, a lot of my research is focused on sports nutrition and dietary supplements as it relates to athletics. And probably most people are, are, are familiar with my work in terms of uh, looking at protein, high-protein diets or high-protein consumption in exercise-trained individuals. And, um, and that's probably where more, most people know of what I do versus some of the older stuff I did in muscle physiology or muscle plasticity. And so now my research, our research agenda at the university I work at in South Florida at Nova Southeastern University, we focus on sports nutrition and also we've created this sort of new category of sports neuroscience. So you, you, you've definitely got a, a very kind of interesting range of topics to, to, to focus on at the moment. Um, just, just for anybody who not, might not be familiar with the ISSN, would you be able to kind of explain what the ISSN, ISSN is and what they, what they do? Because they are very, very prolific when it comes to events and publications. Right, thanks. The ISSN, or International Society of Sports Nutrition, was started uh, back in 2004 by myself a Dr. Doug Kalman, Dr. Rick Kreider, Dr. Susan Kleiner, and also Anthony Almada. And really the goal of the ISSN is if you go back 20 years ago, most academics sort of viewed sports nutrition or sports supplements as sort of, uh, it was snake oil. The stuff doesn't work. It's a waste of time. And I had academics telling me that I should never do re even research in sports nutrition or supplements, which I thought, well, that's really odd. I mean, the only way to understand this stuff is to study it. But she insisted it's just not a good idea. And so the ISSN, the goal of the ISSN was promote that, uh, that, that there should be some marriage of what the industry promotes and science. Because at the end of the day, 
If the industry is going to make claims about a product, the only way to verify the claims is through science. Otherwise, it's just puffery, marketing puffery, which, you know, there's, that's, I'm, I'm completely fine with marketing puffery, but at the end of the day, we need evidence. And the goal of the ISSN is to promote the science of sports nutrition and the science of supplements because, let's face it, there is no academic organization or academic society that does that. I mean, uh, there are sort of, uh, there's sort of a little bit here and there with the, like in the U.S., we have the National Strength and Conditioning Association, maybe a little bit with the American College of Sports Medicine, but they really just don't do a good job with it. So I think the ISSN has been instrumental in growing the sports nutrition category, both academically and also to promote that it's a legitimate area of, of research. And what's really interesting, and I don't know what the trends are in the UK, but if you go before the year 2000, sports nutrition courses at the university level were absolutely rare. In fact, I don't think there were any. If you go uh, from 2000 on, particularly when the ISSN started, now I think every major university and college in the United States has a sports nutrition course. And in fact, PhD programs and graduate programs in the United States, you can do a thesis or dissertation on sports nutrition. And people think it's like, cool, it's, it's acceptable. In fact, in a way, it's the sexy area because people, everyone finds it interesting whether you're a scientist or not. And I assume in the UK it's similar where sports nutrition is, is a legitimate field of inquiry. But really, two decades ago, it was not looked upon that way. It was looked upon as really sort of the black sheep of the science family. Yeah, absolutely. In, in the UK at the moment and Ireland, um, you will be kind of hard pressed to not find a university uh, that, or to find a university that doesn't offer some form of uh, sports science course. And even my own university here at uh, Liverpool, John Moores, uh, ha is quite renowned for its, uh, its, its sports science department. So, um, yeah, it, it's a fantastic field at the moment. But, yeah, even 20 years ago, it is amazing to think that it, it was almost a, not a legitimate science back then. Yeah, 20 years ago, it literally didn't even exist. And I think, I think the U.K. and the United States have been instrumental in really pushing it. And, you know, other countries in Europe as well as Australia have helped quite a bit. But I think it's primarily a U.K. and U.S.A. Um, uh, in a way, the United Kingdom and the United States dominate the field, and it might be a population issue, but also a lot of the original sports supplement research, in fact, some of the best scientists in our category come from the United Kingdom. Uh, Roger Harris, um, he was the original guy who looked at creatine and also beta alanine. I mean, absolutely brilliant guy, and some of the best scientists absolutely come from the U.K., Absolutely. And with, uh, you know, the, the publications that you do at the, the ISSN, it, it really is a valuable contribution to the field because uh, I, I constantly have people asking questions about sports supplementation or different nutritional practices that people need to use. And in, invariably, there's almost always an ISSN position stand on what people yeah. should be doing, whether it be, you know, creatine or nutrition for endurance or something like that. There's a concise review of the body of research that people can kind of rely on for, for evidence-based information. And it's great to yeah, have that. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm glad you brought up position stand. Sorry for the short sidebar digression, but a lot of times we get those ideas from people in the field. They'll say, hey, have you done a position stand on uh, antioxidants? I'm just making that up because I don't want to do one on antioxidants. Uh, <laughs> maybe someone else could write it. But, but it comes from practitioners who get these questions from their clients. And so... If there's something you or your, uh, or your colleagues have in terms of, hey, I wish there was a position stand that summarized, you know, X, Y, and Z, 
Um, that's, that's how we come up with this stuff. Cause oftentimes it's, it's, it's questions from people who are master students, PhD students, people out in the field that are saying, Hey, tell, tell us a little bit about probiotics or tell us, you know, what would be the best, uh, if there is a best, what would be the best thing for, let's say strength power athletes or endurance athletes. So, um, we like that kind of information. Oh, absolutely. Cause, uh, oftentimes, uh, a lot of the questions that we, we need to look into come from people working, you know, um, at the kind of grassroots level. Um, I was, I, I really want to kind of take the conversation into one of I, what I know is kind of like a, one of your main uh, areas of, of research, and that's into protein, because I know nowadays, uh, just with the, with the kind of the current uh, fitness trends that are going on, protein has become like the, the golden boy of of nutrition um, for a lot of different reasons. And I, I was wondering how you got into uh, protein research originally. Well, you know what's interesting is when I was doing my master's degree, this was at Kent State University. Um, my advisor was actually, his name was Peter Lemon, and he, did, he wrote a lot of the original review papers on protein needs for athletes. But that wasn't, that wasn't what I studied from my master's degree. I actually studied um, the, the effects of combining endurance and strength training on strength and endurance. But sort of moving forward, um, I had always thought, based on what limited data there was, that people who work out just need more protein. To me, it's, it makes sense. The data's there. I, was, I always wondered why people would debate it. So years go by, years go by, social media, you know, we got Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> Instagram, and now there's all these people, all, I mean, I don't know who they are. They're coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, protein's bad for you. It's bad for your kidneys. It'll kill you. And I'm thinking, where are these people coming up with this stuff? And there was a part of me that thought, okay, do we really need to do another protein study, one, to show that it's safe, and two, to show that people who work out need more of it? And quite honestly, the answer to myself was no. However... <laughs> I was getting really annoyed by all these people saying really just wrong things about protein. Um, and so let me sort of digress into a story. I was teaching an exercise physiology class. This, this was probably seven years ago. It was quite a long time ago. And there was one of my students, uh, a guy who was fairly large, and I always noticed him eating. And I walked up to him one day, and I'm like, hey, uh, how much do you eat? Because I always see you eating. And he was a, he was a fairly good-sized bodybuilder. Um, and so he went through the – this sort of Rolodex in his head, you know, because bodybuilders are very great at telling you exactly what they eat. In fact, that's why physique athletes oftentimes make the best subjects because they can tell you exactly what they eat. So he went through his sort of mental Rolodex, and he's like, yeah, I eat about uh, 250 to 300 grams a day of protein. I'm like, oh, well, that's actually quite a bit of protein. And he, he was maybe two, I don't know if you guys can think in pounds because I can't think in kilos, sorry. Uh, he's probably 210 to 220 pounds, which is 100, uh, kilos, 100 kilos. Yeah, he's about 100 kilos. Um, so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, he eats a lot of protein. He's fairly large and fairly lean. Why don't I just do a simple study? And here's where, here's where I think people who don't do science don't understand the nuances of science. So the very... I would say, ask the simple question first. So what's the simple question? Why don't we just get people to work out, because there's a lot of them here in South Florida, and just make them eat a lot of protein? <laughs> and so I'm in my mind, well, what's a lot of protein? Well, how about um, double your body weight in pounds? So it would be instead of 2.2 grams per kilo, it would be 4.4 grams per kilo, which, as you know, is a lot of protein. <laughs> so simple question. What if we just get people to work out to eat a lot of protein? 
And you might be familiar with that paper. We found that if you don't change training and all you do is eat a lot of protein, nothing happens, <laughs> which is really odd. Nothing happens. You don't get fat. You don't get muscle. Nothing happens. Okay, which shows that diet and exercise are inter, inter, inextricably uh, uh, intertwined. So we're thinking, okay, eating a lot of protein by itself does nothing. You don't get fat. You don't get skinny. Um, but we had one huge problem with that study we had probably 30% of people drop out. Oh, wow. And they dropped out. Yeah, they dropped out because they said, I can't eat this much. And this is where it's interesting because, you know, and I hate when clinicians say this, they're like, oh, you can get all your protein from your food. I'm like, bullshit, no, you can't. You can't unless all you do is eat. Are you going to eat all day? Who eats all day? I mean, sumo wrestlers eat all day, but other than that, who eats all day? So to avoid 30% of people dropping out, we decided, okay, the follow-up study is let's drop the dose to three grams per kilo instead of more than four grams per kilo. And three grams per kilo is still a lot. Uh, don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. It's still a lot. And we're also going to change their training so that they all follow your sort of traditional split routine bodybuilding training. So it's, it would be, you know, chest, shoulders, tries, back, biceps, legs, take a rest day and just repeat the cycle. So they're all on a traditional bodybuilding training program, and they're all eating a lot of protein. Again, an eight-week study. We also t did some blood work just to see, because, you know, kidneys explode when you eat a lot of protein, apparently. So I wanted to make sure nothing exploded. So after eight weeks, we had a high-protein group and a control. Oddly enough, the control group was still fairly high. So really, it was a really high-protein group compared to a not-as-high-protein group. And ironically, again, unexpectedly, that's why you do the studies, the group that ate more protein, they gained the same amount of lean body mass as the control group. The control group ate roughly 2.2 grams per kilo. The high-protein group ate about 3.3-ish grams per kilo, gained the same amount of lean mass. However, the higher-protein group lost more fat mass, which is kind of interesting because they're eating more calories in the form of protein. What's going on? Obviously, protein intake affects energy output. Um, it's, it's not like one thing happens and the other thing doesn't. They're connected. So energy in, energy out is connected. So is there something about eating a lot of protein that affects NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis? Maybe it's the crazy high thermic effect of protein. Who knows? However, there does seem to be a, an enhancement of body composition as protein needs go up by the loss of fat mass, which is kind of cool. I'm like, wow, that's, well, that's kind of interesting, but it's still a lot of protein. Um, secondarily, we, uh, looking at liver function, kidney function, nothing changed. Okay. So eight week study, kidney function, fine, blood work, fine. You gain lean mass, although there seems to be a limit. If you can eat roughly 2.2 grams per kilo and your goal is just to gain lean mass, that seems to be sufficient. However, if you go above and beyond that, it's possible that you might lose fat mass. And I think this is where let me go back to the position stand because I'm sure you've read the position stand on protein. If you were to ask individual authors that position stand, I guarantee you most of them would have higher recommendations than the actual position paper. Why? The position paper is based strictly on interpretation of existing data. However, when you work with an athlete, when I work with an athlete, we use it as a guide, but we don't put it this way. I'm not a science purist. I don't, you know, if a study says, well, at 1.9 grams per kilo, anything above that doesn't help. I'm not someone who sticks to 1.9 grams per kilo. I tend to think, well, is there any possible benefit to something higher? And the answer to that is yes. Here's why. If you eat more than 1.9 grams per kilo or 2.2, you might lose fat mass. 
But on the flip side, outside of extreme endurance athletes, most of us do not have this inordinate need for carbon tape. So my thought is get sufficient protein, and if it's high protein intake, that's good, and then backfill the rest of your diet with carbs and fat because <laughs> I know – a lot of people think this, but when you're on the weight room and lift, you're not burning hardly, you're not burning anything. The energy expenditure from resistance training is like nothing. And I don't care what they say about EPOC, that's like nothing too. And for people who go to Orange Theory or CrossFit or whatever, you're not burning that many calories. So there's not this crazy need for a carb intake. So get your protein in, backfill it with, uh, with carbs and fat. Um, so that was the second study. Sorry for that digression there. I keep digressing. No, no. So, <laughs> so we figured out, okay, eating a lot of protein, there seems to be a limit in terms of lean mass, but maybe you lose some fat mass. That really, for a lot of people, the, the critical question was, okay, they're on a high-protein diet for two months, but what if you put them on a longer, high, higher-protein diet? Will it be harmful to the kidneys? So we took our best subjects, and these were male bodybuilders, and said, and they love these studies, they're like, what if you just con kept consuming a high-protein diet, but we follow you for a year? Okay, and the beauty of <laughs> using male physique guys is they always want free protein. So they're like, hey, if you're going to give me protein, I'll keep coming to the lab. So they basically got as much whey protein as they want. So they don't have to buy protein for about a year, right? And that can get expensive. And so we followed these guys for over a year, and and the primary clinical endpoint was we wanted to see if it affected uh, blood lipids, uh, uh, their kidney function, and and liver function. And as you know, <laughs> after one year. Um, we found nothing. Nothing happened. You know, it's like, wow. I mean, but there was a part of me, I'll be honest, there was a part of me, I'm like, why am I wasting my time doing these studies? Of course nothing's going to happen. It's, it's food. You're eating food. Why would it affect your kidneys? Um, and then you hear physicians who work with renal patients say, well, we make sure we cut back on protein intake because these, you know, our patients are, uh, there's renal dysfunction. And I hate <laughs> I hate that analogy when they take someone from a clinical population and they apply it to people who work out. I just hate it because I still get it. I mean, I even get it at my university. I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? So the analogy I would use is this. Um, if you get someone who's had a recent heart attack, right, cardiac patient, they go to the emergency room, they do whatever they need to do, keep you alive, they put you in bed, and the next day I say, you know what? I think you should run 10K, 10 kilometers today. Well, I'd, I would imagine that cardiac patient would probably die, right? So, does running kill you? Well, no, but within the context of someone who's just had a heart attack, the last thing you're going to do is make them run. However, if you get a healthy person and have them run a 10K or a 5K, they're perfectly fine. That's the same with protein. I mean, here's, here's the interesting caveat. The only people who purposely consume a high-protein diet are people who work out. Like, for instance, I don't know. Is there a Walmart in Liverpool? Do you have a Walmart? Uh, no, we're, I'm familiar with the with the. <laughs> okay, well, if you ever walk into a Walmart in the United States, you will notice that the physiques tend to be quite large, right? And we're not talking muscle. We're talking, you know, fat. Um, <laughs> people who are built like that, do not go to the whey protein aisle and say, you know what, I'm going to get me a big tub of whey and I'm going to jack my protein intake to four grams per kilo. No, they don't do that. The only people who do it are people who work out. So 
when you're talking about high-protein diets, you're really talking about a specific subset of people who work out like crazy. We're, these aren't recent heart attack patients. These aren't kidney. These aren't uh, patients who are who are uh, undergoing dialysis because their kidneys are, are failing. These are healthy people. So, one year, no no side effects. However, this is where social media is really funny. And I and, and I remember when we published that study, <laughs> I posted on Facebook, and one of my friends said he texted me. He's like, "Hey, give it a day or two. Someone's going to say one year is not long enough. They might even say you need two years, maybe even five or ten years." So what do you know? I think it was a couple of days later on Facebook, someone said, ah, one year. You got to do it for two years, maybe even five years. So when you do that five-year study, yeah, come back to me. <laughs> Thinking, five-year study? Who, who's going to do this for five? No one's going to do this for five years. So they, it's, it's, they keep changing the criteria because they don't like the way the, way the data is. It's sort of like the data is the data. If you don't like it, you don't like it. I mean, I don't really care. And I always tell people, I really don't care what you eat. You can eat Twinkies. You can eat cupcakes. You can eat cookies. I don't care. I don't care if all you do is eat steak or pork chops or potato chips. I don't care. Uh, but the data is the data, and you got to go by the data. So, so we did that. <laughs> we had that one-year study, and because I was getting really annoyed by people on social media, I said, you know, what if we – got the most serious bodybuilders, which I think it was like five or six of them. And we said, we're going to keep giving you protein. Could you do this for another year? And so they're like, yeah, sure, we'll do it for another year. So two years on a high-protein diet, and they were averaging three grams per kilo. We looked at blood lipids, liver, kidney, but whatever. We looked at all. And again, nothing. <laughs> you know, I keep saying to myself, why do we keep doing these studies knowing that nothing happens? And sometimes I don't have an answer, but, you know, it makes it makes for a fun conversation. And also, what's interesting is there's still people, even in the science world, who don't, who think higher protein intakes are harmful because, they, again, they conflate healthy people who consume a lot of protein with a clinical population. And, again, you can't do that. Uh, I always tell, uh, when I talk, give talks to physicians, I, I, I make it clear to them that, when you talk about people who exercise, who are, who are well-trained, they are a completely different set of humans than people who are sedentary. It's, it, they're not even, you know, I, I sort of make, not make fun of it, but it's like they're not even the same species. People who train are just completely different in physiology than people who are sedentary. And I think because physicians aren't really exposed to well-trained people, they're usually exposed to sick people, they don't immediately get it. But I think that's one of the problems with medicine is you're only exposed to like the bottom of the barrel in terms of health, whereas you and I are exposed to sort of the top of the barrel, people who are like highly trained. And so our view of the world tends to be really quite different. Um, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I, 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 I think that that last comment that you made about, um, let's say we, we have different viewpoints because of the different populations that we see regularly is really, really relevant because there, there, especially on social media, there seems to be... Um, so a lot of people will take uh, information that comes from a study that was done in athletes and try to apply it to a uh, to a general population. And correct, it's not, it's not going to be the same thing. And we need to kind of think think about this. You know, we need to think about who are we working with when we're giving our recommendations. And one thing that kind of people often you know jump on is, for example, uh, government recommendations when it comes to food intake and what nutrient intake and what we should be eating. And I think, you know, 
the government uh, the government kind of recommendations get a really hard time from the the exercise based crowd just because you know we we need to think about it we're dealing with a in general a sedentary population you know and you know maybe they're not going to need 3.3 grams of protein per per day from you know um to to get them as jacked as possible but you know we we need to think about how are we going to keep them as healthy as possible and we need to think about other things differently um but like so you you were saying you had you had that population of highly trained bodybuilders for 2 years on a diet of just about 3 grams per kilogram of of protein Correct. no problem whatsoever none and in fact um i think what a lot of people don't understand is and these guys will even admit it they can't get that through food they would literally one it would cost too much to buy all that food too they'd be eating all day so really the the way they hit those protein goals was mainly whey protein so So you could say if you're a science person you could say well at least we know whey protein by itself doesn't cause any harm. Okay, well, we could say that too because the only way you're going to get that high is if you're going to consume a protein shake. Now, common sense would tell me that if instead of whey protein, let's say it was casein or let's say it was soy or or one of the vegan proteins, I'm I don't I can't imagine there would be a different mechanism that a different form of protein uh would have in terms of any potential harm. So So I think once you get to 3 grams per kilo um whether it's from whey or eating more chicken I'm not sure it matters um and also one of the weird side effects these individuals had and I'm sure you're acutely aware of this they were sweating a lot they sweat a lot they were hot um I remember from one of the initial studies this really petite young girl she was one of the best subjects as she would eat exactly what I told her and and she complained that she was constantly hot and that when it's already hot in Florida so now you're just hot because you're eating protein she said to fall asleep she would lay in bed and turn the fan on full blast just to cool her off because she was she was constantly sweating and as you know the thermic effect of protein is so high that you know you're going to be sweating but but it's interesting that so many complained about I'm <laughs> just too dang hot um and also a lot of them complained they had no appetite it was people think eating a lot is fun but at the end of the day eating a lot is work and and the one thing that i like about physique athletes is they figured out that nutrition is critically important to the to the physique athlete the performance athlete whether you're in the strength power side or the endurance side or playing a team sport they're starting to pick up on that but i don't think they realize how important it is for performance the way a bodybuilder realizes it's important for physique so at least it's starting to trend that way and and i used to do a, uh, a bit of work with physique uh, athletes back in the 90s i actually i worked for muscle and fitness magazine way back when but i've really transitioned away from that more towards um working with people who have a performance goal because at the end of the day it's when you have you ever been to a bodybuilding show or physique show where i hate to say it, but it is boring as hell it is boring you know you go there's a quarter how many quarter turns can i watch i'm like how long does this stuff go it's just like 5 hours of quarter turns I don't care how good looking everyone is. It's this is really boring. So, <laughs> I can't go to those shows anymore. So I prefer to work with people, you know, uh whether it's lifting more weight so it's measurable or crossing a finish line which is measurable. To me that's a lot more fun and also you don't have to worry about judges, you know, saying, "Well, your glute ham tie is it work?" I'm like, "Who cares if I get glute ham ties?" It's it's just annoying. So. <laughs> wow. Um so uh <laughs> 
we, we, we've spoken a lot about different quantities of protein. Um, and, you know, like, so you're obviously working with huge amounts of protein um, with the, the athletes that you've been working with. Just to give people a little bit of context, what are the kind of the recommendations that, that we have, the global recommendations that we have? And would you be able to explain why those global recommendations are at the level that they're at? Okay, so first, uh, let's go with the recommendations that we find in the ISSN position paper. Um, and actually, if you look at other position stands, not just the ISSN, but I think the Canadian Dietetics Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, they generally, and this is for active exercise trained people, they generally recommend roughly one point, I'll say 1.4 to maybe up to two grams per kilo for protein. Um, and I think for the average recreational exerciser, that works. Um, now, let's say you're competing. And it, you don't even have to be competing for an event to make money. You might be competing just because you want to push yourself. You want to see how much you could lift. You want to see how fast you could run a 5K or whatever. What would happen if you consumed more than that? And this is where I, I actually uh, am, am a little different than even what we put for the ISIS and position stand in that I tend to err on the higher side in that there's no harm to going higher, and certainly there's a potential benefit in terms of body composition. So to me, your baseline protein intake for anyone who works out, anyone who trains, is 2.2 grams per kilo, which, as you notice, is probably, that's probably the high side of every recommendation by every organization. So their high side is my baseline. Start at that baseline and, and then backfill the rest of your diet. And when I have random conversations with athletes, in fact, I was at a, I was at a triathlon in Key West. My wife ran, she did the duathlon. And speaking to uh, this one particular duathlete, asking simple questions about what, what she ate, it was clear to me that most athletes actually just don't get enough protein. It just, I mean, that might seem odd to you and I, but it's like when you hear what they eat, it's like, wow, I'm surprised you even recover from training with all the training you do. And, and to me, the simplest solution for that is rather than changing their diet, I'll tell you this, I'm not a fan of changing someone's diet because obviously other than for physique sports where diet is part of the sport, for a lot of performance sports, changing diet, you might be able to do it temporarily, but at the end of the day, people switch back to what they like to eat. All you can do is make simple, simple changes that you know they'll stick to. And to me, the easiest thing to do is post-workout or post-competition, consume some protein and get as much as possible, get 40 or 50 grams get it in a shake or whatnot. And that's the easiest way to get additional protein. Now, they might still like to eat whatever other crap they want to eat, and you can pretend you can change that, but unless I always say unless you're making money competing, then it, it really doesn't matter. You're really just competing against yourself. So when we look at organizations, look at their protein recommendations. They tend to be, I think they tend to be conservative. Me personally, I'd say err on the high side because it either helps or has a neutral effect. And and here's what's interesting. When you look at the three macronutrients, carbs, fat, protein, why is it that both scientists and clinicians, the first thing they look to limit is protein? We've got to limit protein, and then what? You just pig out on carbs and fat? Nobody, you rarely hear people talking about limiting carbs or limiting fat. In fact, I don't think I ever hear about it. It's always, well, we've got to limit protein because for whatever mysterious reason. But never talk about limiting carbs and fat when, in fact, Protein is probably the more difficult, most difficult of the, of the macronutrients to get. So get your protein intake in first and then backfill the rest of your diet with carbs and fat. In terms of whatever your energy intake is, that's how much carbs and fat you should add um, to fulfill your energy needs for the day.
Okay. So you are on the high side of things. So if we if we look if we look at um if we look at what let's say somebody like the, the World Health Organization recommends they they I think the recommendation globally is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body uh, body weight which is very is that, very is that, low. Is that for a hamster? Is that for a hamster or are you <laughs> potentially um <laughs> but so a, a lot of people like will, will say oh And, and because people always refer to the World Health Organization, and and because you know it's it's a big, massive international body, and people say, oh yeah, so the world the world the WHO only recommends point eight. Why would I want all of this, all, all of the the rest of this? And you know, I think few people realize that point eight is there just to make sure that people don't start dying of things like quashiorka or you know like right. protein malnutrition. You know, um, exactly. So, um, one population that I want to speak because we 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 we've spoken about like athletes now um and I want to kind of speak about one of the clinical populations that we could possibly be working with um just because you know you did bring up the point of saying that you know certain clinicians will you know they they will try to automatically limit protein so my own research is in um is working with older people to to people who are suffering from sarcopenia or muscle loss let me when when does, you, when does I have a great when does older start? That's a really good question. That's a really good question that I don't want to answer uh on this. <laughs> I I I'm going to say I work with a population that has older individuals in it, okay? People who are okay. who have suffered from a heart attack at some point in their life, okay? Okay, And okay. I I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that backlash. Um <laughs> So if we're so, working with, so so anyone over 45 is what you're saying. You said it. I did not, okay? Um, <laughs> so one thing that this population has to deal with is a loss of muscle mass that's called yep. sarcopenia, okay? And it happens to everybody it it it, it there it's becoming a major health concern. And I'm just I just I know that you have written a review paper relatively recently on sarcopenia and protein and I was wondering if you could have uh if, if you might you know uh, offer a few thoughts on um how protein relates to that particular population. Yeah, I think um I, I mean as the as the population gets older and I I know in the US and probably the UK you see the same trends. The average age of the populations of both countries it's going to keep rising and rising and rising. People live longer medical care is better etc cetera, etc cetera. now as as we get older we know that we tend to be desensitized to the effects of protein so in fact we need to consume more protein as we age because we don't get quite the same effects as someone who's 18 to 30 years 30 years of age to prevent sarcopenia which is clearly clearly an issue and and I sorry to digress I have a lot of stories there was a there was a uh, conference the American College of Sports Medicine one of the very first conferences I went to this was like 30 40 years ago no it couldn't be that long 30 years ago American College of Sports Medicine there was a guy who gave a presentation and this is way back when resistance training was not viewed as something that you needed to do for health right and i remember this presentation where a guy put a slide of a bodybuilder and basically after making fun of his physique said has anyone ever died of having you know do you need large muscles to live long meaning no one's ever died of having small muscles and of course that's not taking into account that as you get older losing skeletal muscle mass and you know sarcopenia contributes to a whole host of maladies so no you don't have to look like a bodybuilder 
but yeah, you need to carry lean mass because it is predictive of mortality. Um, so you fast forward 20 or 30 years, times have changed. Clearly, you need to do both resistance training and uh, aerobic training for general health and things like that. Now, with sarcopenia, because, uh, because we're losing, and here's the thing, age always wins. No matter what you do, you're still going to lose lean mass. But, hey, let's slow it down a bit. You know, we're, you know even Jack LaLanne, he, you know, he was one of the fitness icons in the U.S., died at age 94. He was able to maintain lean mass for a long time, and then, you know, eventually, you know, Age always wins, basically. So to alleviate or diminish the effects of the age-related loss of skeletal muscle mass, really protein intake is critical. And this is where I would say err on the high side because there's no po possible harm. I would say if it, if it helps or has a neutral effect, you should do it. Also, to prevent sarcopenia, if you like heavy resistance training, that would be the ideal way to prevent it. If you're not a fan of the gym, and this is where I think I notice on social media, people like to give recommendations based on what they like versus what the client likes. I see this with diet as well, particularly with vegan people, vegetarians. They're like, they want to convert you to being a vegan versus working with the client and figure out what the client likes. Same with exercise. If they don't like to weight train, which would be ideal, Maybe they should swim or run, although swimming isn't the best thing, particularly for bone mass, but still it helps. Have them do an exercise that will help prevent the loss of lean mass. So exercise plus protein intake, and even maybe more important than protein intake is just total energy intake. Uh, so combined protein and energy intake is critical for alleviating the loss of lean mass. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the things that I think we see, like, if you go to any race here or even go into any local gym, you see a lot of individuals that are 65 or older who are either pushing weight or they're running really fast or they're cycling really fast. And to me, I mean, that's one of the best things you can see in terms of preventing sarcopenia. So staying active and getting your protein in. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think it's, it's uh, they sound like very, very easy you know, fixes, but obviously they, they, a lot of it comes down to habit change and kind of making that happen in, in that population. Um, one thing that you did mention is you mentioned um, bone health very, very briefly there. And that's something that a lot of people bring up when it comes to protein intake. And people will say, oh, if you eat a lot of protein, you're going to, you're going to leach all of the calcium out of your bones. You're going to get brittle bones and osteoporosis by the time you're, you know, 25. Um, right. What's the what's the research look like on um, on bone health and protein intake? Yeah, that's another that's another funny one. I must say that's a funny one. Um, I didn't mention it, but we did. Uh, uh, there are people who complained about how come we only study male bodybuilders? Come on, why don't you study girls? I'm like, okay, I'll study girls. Okay, I'll study girls. Before you know it, someone will say, how come you don't study cats and dogs? I'm like, come on, I can't study everyone. So okay, so we're gonna study girls. So I got a bunch of female studs. These girls were like well-trained. They did CrossFit. They were triathletes. They were, we even had world-class runners. Uh, we had girls who were pretty good. Uh, I would call them recreational bodybuilders. And we put them on a higher protein diet for a year just to see what happens to their bones, right? Now, what's interesting about anyone who works out, particularly, you know, whether you're male or female, but for these female athletes, their bone mineral density is already high. Why? Because they freaking train. So if it's already high to begin with, there's only one way for you to go, and that's down. I mean, you don't suddenly gain bone mass when you're already super high uh, to go super, super high. Uh, so we got these trained females, 
for one year, they consumed roughly 2.2 grams per kilo. And just, just as a caveat, it's much harder to get women to overfeed on protein than men. For whatever reason, that's how it is with my subjects. They still are stuck to the, God, if I eat too much protein, I'll get fat. When I'm like, no, you won't get fat. Just eat more protein. If, and if you're worried about calories, eat more protein and take carbs and fat away. Whatever. So I had these highly trained women, followed them for, for one year. Uh, we DEXA scanned them, and we looked at bone mineral density. We looked at their T-score. And basically, you know, just like the kidney and liver stuff, uh, nothing happened. I mean, their bone mineral density stayed high the whole time. And now people say, well, you know, one year's not enough. Uh, maybe you should do 10 years, uh, 20 years. Maybe you should do it till they die, and then, then we'll really know. Um, and there's a point where it becomes so ridiculous what the parameters are. It's like, come on. If anything happens, it should happen in a year. Even if it's trending downward, something should happen. And nothing happened. And, and again, here's the caveat. These are women who train like crazy. They already eat well, and they're eating a lot of protein. Like I said, if you walk into a Walmart, you're not going to find the average woman who wants to eat a lot of protein, right? Walmart people don't eat. I hope there's no one listening who goes to Walmart a lot here. Sorry. Um, not on my end, anyway. <laughs> you're right. For anyone who goes to Walmart, yeah, I apologize in advance. I actually like Walmart. It's, you know, I think uh, they have a lot of cheap stuff there. Even their protein's cheap. Um, so women who are highly trained, who consume a lot of protein and take care of themselves, their bone mineral density is high and it stays high. And what's interesting is if you look at bone mineral density of athletes in general, the ones who are the highest are fighters, mixed martial arts fighters, and uh, at least from the population we studied, American football players. And it's a collision issue. What's interesting, particularly about the fighters, we get a lot of UFC fighters that come to our lab, and it's not because they're lifting weights, because for the most part, I mean, they lift weights, but they're doing a lot of other stuff, mainly practicing fighting, you know, grappling and striking. It's probably from the impact of kicking, punching, falling on the mat, and things like that. Fighters have crazy high bone mineral density. So... I always tell women if they want to increase their bone mineral density, okay, you don't like to lift, you don't like to run, well, maybe you should start fighting. And then they're like, oh, okay, I don't want to fight. Okay, then you better lift and run. Do something. So I thought I'd throw in that little sidebar discussion there. Well, but I, I think it absolutely highlights the fact that, you know, how important exercise is for for bone health because it, it's it's basically, it's just like, it's like building muscle. You know, you need a stimulus to build muscle. You need a stimulus to maintain strong, healthy bones, bones as you get, out, get older. So, yeah. Yeah. Is that. Um, like, we could, we could talk about protein for hours, and I'm very, very conscious of your time. But one thing that I, <laughs> I did want to touch on um, is, so you're involved now with the Society for uh, Neurosports. Is that correct? Yes, myself um, and Corey Peacock and Jamie Tarter, we, we co-founded the Society, and we just had our first conference uh, actually a couple of weeks back here in Florida. What are, what are the goals for the Society? It, it, it's kind of interesting because um, one of the goals was we really want to, in the exercise science field, we're really good at understanding how the body responds peripherally, meaning from the neck down, we're good at it. We know what happens in skeletal muscle and liver and kidneys and, and cardiac muscle, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not very good at the neck up stuff. We don't really understand what the mechanisms are that happen in the central nervous system. And that's where a neuroscientist would come in. They understand the brain, but they don't understand exercise. We understand exercise, but we don't understand the brain. So our goal is to marry the field of neuroscience with the field of exercise science 
Because at the end of the day, and, and people who compete in the sport know this, that a lot of, particularly if, you're, if you look at, um, um, let's say, uh, Olympic weightlifting, or you look at a sport where it's, uh, it's track and track and field. And, you know, in Olympic weightlifting, you might beat someone lifting maybe a kilo more. Um, in fact, if you look at some of these, what's fascinating is if you look at Olympic weightlifting and look at the, some of the uh, smaller Chinese weightlifters, these guys weigh 70 kilos. And they are lifting up to three times over their body, uh, their body weight over their head. And there's a part of me that's like, how does a human being do that? Because you got to have skeletal muscle, but you're in a weight class, so you can't add muscle to be stronger. Your bone mineral density has to be crazy high. you got to have good technique. But still, there's something about it that's really odd, and there has to be something happening at the level of the central nervous system that allows you to lift that much weight. Same with if you look at track and field and you look at a track event. Why is it that some, you know, some people are just very good at shaving one one-thousandths or one one-hundredths of a second off a of time and others are not? Again, it's got to be something that you could train at the level of the central nervous system. Now, we don't know because, you know, at least with peripheral, uh, if, we're, if we were to measure things peripherally like skeletal muscle, in humans we can take a biopsy. Well, we can't biopsy your brain. Right? I mean, I don't think. Can they do that in the UK? Like, biopsy the brain? Yeah. I, I don't think it passed through uh, an ethics committee. <laughs> yeah, see, I see, you guys have rules over there. So that's good. We <laughs> like that. We like those rules. Um, so we can't biopsy the brain. So really, we're left with looking at sort of these peripheral measures. Like, for instance, we're in the middle of a project looking at how creatine affects uh, various measures of cognition. And we measure it via some basically mental tests that they take on an iPad. And and there's a accuracy component, and there's a speed component to it. And we've tested a bunch of athletes, uh, fighters, football players, runners, triathletes, et cetera, et cetera, just to see if there's any difference between contact sport athletes like, like football, like boxing, even soccer, or, or football, as you call it, I guess. We have American football, and then you guys have football football. Um, so it gets very confusing when you, like, go across the Atlantic. Because um, I say football, and you're like, well, you mean soccer or whatever. So... The contact sports, we are looking at the cognitive and emotional effects of these contact sports. And just one of the cool things we found recently is that in female soccer players, you call it football, they have higher levels of a protein that we find in their blood called neurofilament light. Neurofilament light is an indicator of injury to the axon, um, so indicator of brain trauma. And again, these are very young girls. These are 18 to 21-year-olds, that they already show signs of possible brain trauma from playing soccer. Why? Because they use their head to hit a ball. In fact, when you think about it, soccer is the only sport where you purposely use your head to hit something. No other sport says, oh, yeah, use your head. Even in fighting, you can't use your head. You can't headbutt. Um, rugby, you can't use your head. I mean, only soccer. How weird is that? You can use your head. Um, also, we're doing another cool study looking at if creatine helps these cognitive processes. Because get this. you have any vegans in your audience? You got vegans? Like, I'm sure I do. Vegetarian? Okay, well, we do it. There is data to suggest that vegetarians or vegans, clearly they're low in creatine because they don't eat meat. And once they supplement with creatine, their brain suddenly starts working like, wow, you know, they, they're suddenly good at processing things mentally. And we're, we want to see if creatine just helps people who are not vegan, but just omnivores. Because if we can get just the average college student to take creatine, maybe it'll help them with test taker or whatnot. Because I always tell my students, even if you don't care about what creatine does to skeletal muscle, it probably will help your brain and ultimately help you with, you know, final exams or whatever. Um, not sure that convinces them, but 
I've already got a reputation in my school that I'm the one who pushes creatine and protein. <laughs> creatine and protein. Come on, creatine and protein. <laughs> so just walking yeah. around with, with with little baggies of white powder for all of your Exactly. <laughs> well, but see, I, I I think that's absolutely fascinating. That that's uh, kind of a let's say a, a nascent area of of sports science uh, and and kind of uh, neuroscience at the moment because. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of those cognitive benefits of creatine, and um, like you said, certain populations, those that don't eat meat, for example, may not have optimal levels, and even omnivores might not have optimal levels. And being able to kind of supplement right. something that's one as cheap and two that has such a safety record like creatine that can benefit cognitive performance, you know, there, there's a huge amount of, of possibilities with that. Yeah, and and. In addition to creatine, there's good data showing that exercise in general helps cognitive performance. Now, the question here, and here's where it's tricky, and this is uh, one of the um, one of the seminars at the Neurosports Conference. Um, uh, scientists from the University of Miami um, covered the data on uh, aerobic exercise, resistance exercise, showing that both help cognition. The problem we have, at least from sports neuroscience, from the field of it, is that we don't have any prescriptive data. We can't say if you exercise this amount of cardio, you get this cognitively, or if you exercise this amount with resistance training, you get this. So if anyone wants a dissertation topic, it is how does exercise, whether it's aerobic exercise or resistance training, how does it affect the cognitive processes? And one, is one better than the other, or are they just different? For instance, we know cardiac muscle uh, hypertrophy is different whether you lift weights or do aerobic exercise, right? We know skeletal muscle adaptation is different when you do aerobic exercise versus a, a resistance, resistance training. So it makes sense that at the level of the central nervous system, it should be different. Now, we have this sort of gentleman's bet in our lab um, about whether aerobic exercise or heavy resistance training would be better for the brain. And it's, it's sort of, there's two of us who say it's got to be weight training, and then there's two of us who say it's got to be aerobic training. And I sort of side with the aerobic training only because there's an increased blood flow and it's it's a much more sustained exercise whereas resistance training is you're doing something for a few seconds then you rest quite a bit um but again i have no idea i'm just guessing it's like you, you, you might as well pick one or the other and when we asked this uh, uh this uh female scientist about this she said well probably neither is better they just all affect maybe different parts of the brain but the god's honest truth uh we don't know <laughs> so if you're doing a dissertation or you need a topic, this is one that is completely wide open. It is totally wide open. So if anybody who's listening is planning on pursuing a PhD right now, send uh, your, your DMs to, to Dr. Antonio. And, uh, <laughs> That's right. Hey, come to South Florida. There you go. You've got, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got like a great yeah. research team and you've got a great environment there as well. Exactly, exactly. Dr. Antonio, like we, we could literally speak about this for so so much longer, and I think I'm going to have to get you on just to talk about the whole neuroscience side of things. Oh yeah. Um, but just before we we finish up, um, if people want to kind of follow your research or, or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Actually, the there's two main ways to follow what I do. I post a lot of the uh, research we do on Instagram, and my uh, Instagram is is the underscore ISSN or the ISSN. Also, I'm on Facebook. We have a ISSN Facebook group page where 
where people seem to fight about a lot of stuff. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Facebook and Twitter too. People that, fight. That, that's that's what social media is for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like life isn't hard enough, but let's get on Facebook and fight. Um, so we have those two. But also, I want to make a a, a plug for the ISSN conference. Um, it is June 18th to 20 next year. In fact, our national meeting is always mid June. It's in Daytona Beach, Florida, which is on the beach, <laughs> because I don't know if you've noticed, but all of the ISSN national conferences are on the beach, and that's because I like the beach. So Daytona Beach, Florida, June 18 to 20, 2000, uh, uh, year 2020. Um, if you love sports nutrition or sports science in general, we'll have about 400 attendees, probably 100 poster presentations. Um, it's a great event. Um, we have happy hour, so you can drink as much as you want as well. And I know um, that attracts a certain subset of people. We have that, and we have a really fun part of it called the Data Blitz. You'll love this, and, and I love it because my attention spans like like a mosquito. I can barely pay attention. However, Data Blitz. Everyone gets 60 seconds to present their data. 60, imagine that, 60 seconds, because that's about my – you know, I can listen for 60 seconds. And then after a while, I'm like, okay, next. So we have about 20 scientists, our students, 60 seconds, present original unpublished data. The format is hilarious. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, our science conference is unlike a lot of others in that, you know, people are, are friendly and, and fun and, and people – hell – Half the conversation is about, hey, what do you eat? And how do you train? It's like, it seems like all anyone talks about is eating and training, which is good. You know, it's a lot of fun. So ISSN, make sure you're there. And besides, a lot of vitamin D for all you UK people. <laughs> uh, like, like I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to look for a grant from the university to get me over there. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it sounds like a really, really good event that I'd love to be at. Uh, Dr. Antonio, thank you so much. This, this has been probably one of the most entertaining uh, lives that I've ever done. Um, you're an absolute information. Uh, so grateful for all of the great work that you put out with the ISSN. And I'm really, really looking forward to seeing all of the research that you're going to be putting out in the coming years. So thank right. you very well, much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. You have a great day or night. You too. Have a great one. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. If you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use or maybe even share a link on social media. It really helps to spread word of the podcast and it really means a huge amount to me personally. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of our guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.